0: Bible. You can go ahead and turn to First John again. Um, uh, Just a reminder too for uh, anybody wants notes through the service. uh, There are notes in the back in the bulletin, or there's the clipboards for the kids. so we're going to go ahead and be in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, and I'll go ahead and just read it. And if you'll notice, I finally got the New King James, so <laughs> hey, so we're all reading from the same translation, finally. Uh, no, but I'm also going to be referencing the ESV a little bit, so just keep that in mind. Uh, so 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. God, we're reminded that the flower withers and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So help us this morning to have your word impressed upon our hearts, upon our minds, upon our souls, so that we may be people-pleasing to you in every way. Give us grace, we ask, that we may see you for who you really are, and be, we may worship. Lord, for this is our prayer, we pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. So this week, uh, we're kind of coming to, and I, I don't know if it does this in the New King James, I think it does, uh, kind of a parenthesis of thought. If you don't know what a parenthesis is, it's kind of like a, a side note in in English, we would say. Uh, and it's a parenthesis because John's breaking up his thought here in, in verses 12 through 14 from what he's just talked about. If you remember what we talked about last time, we talked about the, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, and the one who loves his brother is in the light. Uh, but now he kind of he stops, and he just says, side note, if you will, and then we, we see this kind of a reminder to us. But as uh, I'll give you an example maybe of kind of where he's heading with this today. As I was thinking about this, when I was growing up, we had, a, we had a door in our house. As soon as we walked in the door, you had a doorway just inside the, uh, the mudroom, and we, we had a place where we'd measure ourselves. I don't know if you had one of those. Uh, I think every family has one, just so they can like, see where their kids are growing, making sure your kids are actually growing up. And I remember every couple months, I was so excited. There was a period of time, probably eight or nine, where I would be like, oh, I want to measure every week. I want to see how tall I'm getting. He'd take a pencil and i 'd always try to like i 'm sure every kid does this, but like stand on my tiptoes because I just wanted to be just a little bit taller and I just think that's interesting uh, as we think about even like that 's physical growth we can look at and say, "Oh look that kid at this year he grew an inch this year he grew two inches and and John 's kind of laying out for us a spiritual um, measuring block, if you will he 's kind of he 's kind of laying out um, this is what it looks like to grow spiritually. So in a similar way, we as Christians, much like we grow physically, we, we grow spiritually. Spiritually, The difference is that rather than a doorpost or rather than a measuring stick, our standard is Christ. So we're measuring ourselves. We're standing up against every single time. You can imagine you should do this probably yearly or every six months, just to measure, where, where is my spiritual life at? And John's reminding us, he, he's kind of stopping, he's pausing his thought to just say, almost like an encouragement or a bolstering. And this is what he says. He says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So if you're taking notes, the first note would be just a, a command that we really need to know this, to know who you are. to know who you are. John writes, I I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That is such sweet words. And that word, I I want you to notice in verse 12, if if you have your Bible in front of you, load us in on that word, little children. Now, this word is used seven times in 1 John, and he's not referring to, and we're going to see this real quick, He's not referring to, when he refers to fathers and young men and children, he's not referring to physical fathers, to physical young men, to physical children. He's referring, to, not metaphorically, but spiritually speaking. But here, this little children, he's referring to believers. And I think this is just, if you could put a tagline as a Christian, like what does it mean to be a Christian? You could, you could, you could pretty much take this statement, that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. He uses this word seven times to describe believers in 1 John. He, and I won't read them, but you can read through 1 John and see where he uses them. It's a term of affection and tenderness. And he's writing very clearly to the Christians. So if you're taking notes, that's the next bullet point, to the Christians. And his parentheses of sorts here is bolstering. It's meant to bolster, it's meant to strengthen the believers. Just so we know, because what we're about to see in the next next week, verses 15 through 17, are really scary. Honestly, like, what he's about to... In, and then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he's going to start talking about the Antichrist. He's, he's about to start talking about some things that are... He's, ran, he's ramping up the severity of what he's talking about. And he wants them to know, he wants the believers to know, this is who you are. This is your identity. And I, I like the NET's version. It's not... It, says, it said it like this. I think I have it up on the screen. I'm writing to you, little children, that your sins are forgiven. I think the ESV and the uh, New King James, they had because, but I think it's more appropriate to say that your sins have been forgiven because of his name, namesake. And I want to look at this word, because of his namesake. So John grounds his reasoning for believers' identity in the forgiveness. But he, they're not forgiven because they're good enough. He doesn't say, oh, well, you're forgiven because you prayed the right prayer. You're not, you're not forgiven because you grew up in the right family. They are forgiven on account of his name. When I was growing up, we had a store in Friendsville. And when I say we had a store, I mean we literally had one store in Friendsville. And I remember watching my family. We'd go in sometimes, and we knew the couple. We knew the people who owned it. My family would go in, and sometimes they would say, like, just put it on my tab. If you had something small or whatever. I, I, as a kid, I was always like, that is so cool. You don't have to pay money. You just walk in, grab whatever you want. She scans it and says, put it on the tab. And I just, I always, I think I did do that a couple of times too. And it was like, put it on the tab. But as I think about this, because of his namesake, it actually parallels very well to this idea of a tab at a store. And what we're told here is that John is saying that because it's, it's that you are forgiven for his namesake, it's like he's saying Jesus is the one who you're putting all of your sins on his tab. Every single time you sin, he's not saying, well, I'll pay you back. You're saying, put it on his tab. Put it on his tab over and over and over and over and over again. And for the life of the believer, this is what it is that your sins are forgiven for His namesake. It has nothing to do with you in that way. It has everything to do with His namesake. All of our debts placed upon His tab, His score sheet. Second Corinthians, Paul, he says, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is for our sake or on our our behalf that God the Father made Jesus to be sin. It is because of Christ's name that we are forgiven. And brothers and sisters, that is true of us today. And we should never, never stop wondering at the awe of that. But I want to pause for a second and talk about a barrier to this idea. There's many barriers we can address, but I want to address one very specifically. Because here in verse 12, he's addressing something that probably would have sounded a little different to the people in this day. But it's, it's the issue of identity. And how identity actually, because under this subheading, the, the know who you are. We need to know what our identity is. Now, if we were transferred, if we were transported back 200 years ago, life would look very differently. It wouldn't simply look differently because of technology, but also of how people understood themselves. 200 years ago, people people didn't come up with their own way to identify themselves. They actually had their identity given to them by their families. Now, I'm not saying that's any better or any worse. But what I'm saying, though, is our identities today are much different. We're being fed a lie at some level that is much different than the lie that they were fed. Back then, 200 years ago, you were given your identity. That's how we get our, even our last names, Baker and Smith and the like. Children followed in the footsteps of their parents. And, but in our day, we live in a day of expressive individualism that says, how I want to identify myself is however best suits me. When we express ourselves through our individualism. So it makes what John, with this context in mind, it makes what John's saying here all the more important. Because what we identify with is really, and I love what Tim Keller, he says this, he says, and he, he's talking about our need for worth, but I think it, it's, it's helpful to see about identity. He says, our need for worth is so powerful that whatever we base our identity and value on we essentially deify. Okay, let me, say, let me say that again or kind of reword what he's saying. He's saying that whatever we identify ourselves as, what we eventually do is we deify it. The problem is, is that every single person you ever talk to, in today, especially younger folks, their identity is bound up in numerous other things, which means that people say, well, we don't live in a religious culture that's a lie. We live in a very religious culture, except the problem is people have gods all over the place. Most of the time, they're their own god. See, here's the problem. We have an enemy of the soul. The world, and he's literally about to address this in these people, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is why he starts with identity. Notice how he starts. He doesn't say, hey, here's the enemy of your soul. He starts with saying, here's your identity. Here's who you are. I'm writing to you, little children, brothers and sisters, that your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. And what Keller is saying here is essentially the same thing that John Calvin said in our hearts. Mainly that me and you, we are idol factories. And what happens is we continually set up idols. As often as we tear one down, our hearts, our flesh, the world, the flesh, the devil, they come and they try to set another one up. He, I love, again, what Keller says. He says that our hearts deify them, that is, their identities, as the center of our lives because we think we can give us, they can give us significance, security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. And it's a false bill of goods. It's not true. So the question is, how do we guard ourselves from this kind of idolatry? How do we guard ourselves from placing ultimate identity in anything? Well, John's answer. And what we're going to do is we're going to keep John's answer at the forefront, but John's answer is very simple. Let me give you Paul's answer to this, and then we're going to look back and see how John's answer is supporting that answer. Okay, Colossians 3, 3-4, through 4, you don't have to turn there, but it says this. It says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What Paul is saying here in Colossians is not entirely different. It's actually the exact same thing. John's just giving the shorthand of it. He says that your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Paul is saying much more broken out. And he's saying that Christ has died on your behalf. He did so for his own namesake. And I want to show you three realities of what this means for us and what it means for our identity. The first is this is that we have a shared memory. If you're taking notes, you can see a shared memory. And that memory is that we have died with Christ. So for John, he's just using the word forgiven. But Paul's unpacking that a little bit. and He says this. let Let me modify Colossians 3 a little bit and let you see what this would look like. It says, I want to make sure it's on the screen for this one. Yeah. For you have died, and then I put in parentheses my own modification of it. For you have died, that's our shared memory, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, present hope. And then finally, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, which is the glorious destiny. And we see all three of them happen. And We're going to work through each of them as they come. So here's the shared memory. We have been buried with Christ in his death. So every other identity wants to say, yeah, actually, like you have a past. Every identity wants to say, here's your past, here's your experience. But for the Christian, our shared memory as believers, think about this, you sitting here in this pew are more, have more in common with someone in sub-Saharan Africa who's a Christian than your own family that maybe aren't believers. Have you ever thought about that? That you sitting here, because here's why, your life has died. When Christ died, when we sing Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, what we're really saying is we have died with him. Think about that. You are the same. You your identity is the exact same thing as the person in Sub Saharan Africa. Your identity is the same person, is the same as the person we are prayed for even in Tunisia today. And what John is saying is the same thing. He's saying that you have been forgiven for his name's sake. So there's the first part, the shared memory. You have died to your old way. And then here's the second reality. We have a present hope. And your life, yes, yes, your present hope, which is your life is hidden with Christ. I think I made a spelling error. I said live I do make spelling errors. I'm a, I'm a real human being. So if you're taking notes, it's present hope, which is life is hidden with Christ. So here's, if you can, go back to that passage, the modified path. There it is. So we've seen the first part. For you have died. That's our shared memory. Here's the second part. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So present hope. So when John writes that your sins have been forgiven because of his namesake, he's not just thinking about past sins. He's thinking about those past sins that have a present, right now hope for you. So every other identity wants to say, here's here's what you really should live for. Here's what you really need to live for. But listen to what Paul even says in another place. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Think about that. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in. I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We don't live in the same way we once did. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and we cannot live as we once did. Paul, in another place, he says that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So our identity is not just about past, it's also about present. So we as believers don't live sullying in our sin, but actually live by faith in the Son of God. So there's a present reality to forgiveness. And then finally, there's a third reality, which is a glorious destiny, which is we will reign with Him in glory. And you can see it again with what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, which is our glorious destiny, which is what we are bound for. The means of our identity as children of God is found in the resurrection. And Paul, again, in in Romans 6, he says, now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about more specifically as far as what an idol may look like or what false identities may look like. False identities want us to believe that we have an experience and that we should treasure that experience above anything else. They tell us we should cling to that experience and allow that experience to define us. So when people ask us, Daniel, what are you like? Well, I'm a father, I'm a pastor. But take, for instance, someone, let's pretend somebody that builds their life upon the identity of being a spouse. You know what happens to that person? They just think, this is who I am. I'm married to Lynette. This is what I do. I'm just married to them. Every person I talk to, I make sure they know I'm married to her. They become emotionally dependent, jealous, controlling. But when I realize, that's that's the old way, but if I realize, wait a second, no, 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 no. Like I am married to Lynette. That that doesn't that doesn't change. But actually I've died with Christ. And actually. This my spouse is my sister in some, in some way. That I have died with Christ, that I live for Christ, and one day I will live with him ultimately. It changes our identity. Let me give you another one. If you build your life and identity upon money and possessions, what happens is, when you say, this is what I do, I make money, I live in such a way, I have to live according to this standard, you know what will happen? You'll be eaten alive by worry we're jealousy about money. And you, will, when, when, when struggles come, maybe, you'll be so willing to maintain your lifestyle that you'll become unethical because you can't imagine that this idol will be shaken. But for the Christian, we make money. I'm not trying to say we don't make money. We make money for the glory of God. Absolutely. But we don't do it Ultimately. We do it because we've died with Christ, because we live for Christ, and we because we will one day reign with Christ. So Christian, I have one simple question for you. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Is your identity shaped by this world, or is it shaped by the kingdom of heaven? And if you don't know, you're going to find out very soon next week. <laughs> next week, because what we're going to be talking about not to love the world, which is why John is addressing us in this way. He's reminding them, little children, your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, so that you may know your identity. Now, John makes a shift. I know you can't see, it isn't necessarily clear between verses 12 and 13, but there's definitely a shift. And let me show it to you. He goes on and he, he starts talking about so he starts with knowing who you are, but then he starts in verse 13. And I'll just read it. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. So John is about to give us three different categories for what we understand as Christian maturity. Okay, so he's making a distinction. He's moving from, this is believers in general and as as a whole. So knowing who you are in that way. But now he's moving to, what does it look like for Christian maturity? Now, I made a comment a couple weeks ago uh, about Christian maturity that is not a destination. But Christian maturity is not about arriving at a place of a certain amount of knowledge or a claim. That, that's how the world would want us to work. What John is presenting to us is a spectrum of sorts. It's a, it's a measuring chart up on the wall that we measure ourselves year by year. And there's two charts. I have, uh, here's the first chart. When we think about Christian growth, we think about it in our very, at least I think about it in this way, in my very capitalistic, modern, Western idea. Okay, Christian growth, it ought to be something like this. This was my direction as a Christian, and then all of a sudden Christ came, boom, I'm mature. And if I just get enough information, that's what will happen to me. No doubt, bar none, that's what's going to happen. But let me give you a more accurate model of what Christian growth would look like. And if I could, I would actually put little squiggles. I tried. To, you can even see like my art. There's like boxes the whole way up. It's awful. But like, if I could do Christian growth, how it really would look like, what it would be is this, and then down, and then up again. <laughs> but he's presenting to us a model for Christian growth, because this world works on a type of system that is contrary to what Christian maturity is about. Because Christian maturity is about following a person. We have someone who we can look to who is the embodiment of maturity. Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the Bible is very clear. There is a standard in that way, and it's Christ. Which is why he presents now in verses 13 and 14 for us to know whose we are. So he started with, here's no, you need to know who you are in your identity. But now he's turning and saying, you need to actually also know whose you are, who owns you in that way. And there's no neutral ground in this. Every, every secular person I've ever talked to wants to say the same thing. Oh, they, don't, they don't want to choose Jesus because they have their own way of living. You don't get to choose a neutral ground. You're either a servant of Satan or a servant of Christ. So we need to know as Christians whose we are. And John's concern for these believers is that they would know their identity and know the one who has always known them. He's pushing them to know God, but more importantly, and you'll see this, he's actually pushing us to recognize that God has always known us. He's encouraging them to know the one who has bought them with a price. He's pressing them to know that they aren't their own any longer. So he writes in verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So the first point there is to the fathers. Very simple, to the fathers. Now again, to be clear, John is not simply writing to older men. That's not what he's doing here. This is not an issue of, well, this, this person's older, my grandpa, my grandpa, well, that's who he's talking about here. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about older in maturity in Christ, okay? And I'll show you how this is true. And this is not exclusively simply for men either. I realize that John's wrote, written in such a way that it looks like it's men, but I, I think he, could also, he would also put fathers and mothers. Okay, So this is also for women as well. He's writing to those, though, who are matured in their faith. Now, I think there's another chart here. So level three is what I'm calling intimacy. And these these points I got from, I really liked Stephen Lawson. He talks about uh, intimacy. it starts with intimacy at this top. this chart 's helpful because what, what it shows is what John is referring to, which is the fathers, the, the older ones, the ones who are more mature in their faith, are the ones who walk closer to God. And listen to what he says about them, because you know that you know him who is from the beginning he's saying that they have known in an intimate way the one who was from the beginning. Again, the knowing for John is not just intellectual. It's not just knowing about, but it's a deep experiential knowledge. And John reminds these older ones in the faith, you have known him who's from the beginning. Now, the him here, he says, because you know him who's from the beginning, it could be either be referring to God the Father or to Jesus. Wait, I think both are correct. They're technically correct because they're technically both from the beginning. The point is clear, though, that the one whom they have come to know in the face of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit was sent from the Father. That one, they've come to know him. But what, let me tease this out a little bit. What characterizes a father? See, I love how John picks up a metaphor. He picks up a metaphor that we understand of fathers and young men and children, and he applies it to something spiritual. But think about what marks a father. Not, not Maybe you had a bad father. A good father. A father that's a good, he's, he's, he's a good dad. They're marked by strength, by courage, by time-tested faith. These are the Christians who when a crisis hits, they've seen a crisis before. They have contended continually for the faith. They have in a time-tested way endured hardship I like to think too, like when you think about this metaphor of a father, think about what a father eats for a second. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's a weird way to say it, but like what's the, a father's diet? He doesn't just eat chicken nuggets and fries. He eats, he eats good meals, hearty meals. And what's the hearty meal here? And we'll see this even for the young men. It's the word of God. He doesn't just eat it. He, he lives in it. He he eats it and then also not only does he eat it himself but he feeds his whole family that's what he does a father just doesn't think about himself maybe some of us had self-centered fathers but this is not what he's bringing forward he's bringing forward a father who cares for his household one who's clothing the other children around him tending to his wife's needs always thinking about others he goes to work he provides for the family Listen to what Hebrews talks about with those who are mature, even referring to this food metaphor. Hebrews 5, 14 says this, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice that. That the the solid food is for the mature. We don't feed a baby a steak. You know why I don't feed my baby a steak? Because he can't eat it. (laughs) Because he can't digest it. But he eats solid food. And that solid food is the powers of discernment. Or sensing what is true, trained by constant practice. This isn't something random for him. This isn't haphazardly done. But what is it? what does it look like? It's distinguishing good from evil. This is what this father does. And notice in verse 14, John circles even back around. He puts an exclamation mark on this. And he reminds the fathers again. He says... I write to you, fathers, that you know him who is from the beginning. So isn't that interesting that he says this intimacy that you've known him, he's basically saying keep knowing him. Keep knowing him. Urge others into knowing him more. But I find it's interesting that then he stops and he says, he moves on, I guess, to the young men. So the second part is to the young men. Now, the word young men is interesting because it represents someone in adulthood. If we want to think about even like spiritually speaking, we're thinking about someone who's in the prime of their life. They would be people who have walked with God for a shorter time than the fathers, and I think there's a chart for this one as well, but it's just a a little bit further down down the road a little bit, down the scale, not quite there yet. And again, this has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with spiritual maturity. But listen to what marks the younger believer, or the, the younger believer in this way, the young man. The level two is actually infantry, and I love this. So the first level is in intimacy, in the face of war. Level two is infantry. Level two... The word that is used for overcome, I find it really interesting, is actually nakao, is pretty much how it is said, but we get the the company Nike based off of this word, to overcome. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Nike, the company Nike, we actually come that's derived from the same word that we see here for overcome. Just do it. Just do it. The word literally means to conquer and to vanquish. These are the believers who are at a place of doing spiritual warfare. Now, John does the same thing with the fathers. Think about the characteristics of a young man. He's strong. He's he's able. He's, he's, not, he's not mature yet. He's not fully mature, but he's growing. He's always practicing. He's always sharpening his sword. And then listen, I love what you see him him bring with the exclamation mark in verse 14 for the young men. He says, "I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one." It'd be helpful actually to say you overcome because they are strong, and they are strong because of the word of God abiding in them. So these aren't men that are men and women who are who are going off doing spiritual warfare on their own, they are ones who are so saturated in God's word that they overcome the evil one. Psalm 119, we read it this morning. I love, I love Psalm 119. I encourage young men all the time with Psalm 119. It's so good. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. These young men and women are characterized by a tenacity to parent well, to reach their community, to, to walk along with other believers, and they desire to know God more fully and make him known. They're not passively sitting on the bench in the game. They're intaking and consuming God's word, and they're in the warfare. They're in the war. Let me say a word to parenting, just for a second. We, I hope my parents, I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. I was parented, and I I think it wasn't uncommon, and I'm not knocking my mom to say this. I was parented in such a way to have a defensive ma- mindset. I was always reminded, like, look out for the world, look out for this, look out for that. But we ought to parent, not from a position of defensive and fear. May I say this for us? We ought to parent in, in such a way that we're raising young men and women, okay, to go to war. And not, I'm not saying just war overseas for the United States government. That's, that's good. That's a noble thing. I'm saying for Jesus Christ. That we ought to parent from a place, not of fear, of just, honey, look out for the world. Look out for this person. Look out for that person. How I should have been parented was, son, vanquish the devil. <laughs> you know how you do that? By his word. Son, bind this around your heart. Son, don't don't listen to the lies. Go and bring truth forward. We should not simply parent from a place of fear and simply just wanting our kids to be happy and healthy. Those are good things, but they are not ultimate things. May we parent, may we raise our grandchildren, may we push people in our lives to say, get in the fight. Get out of this defensive mindset of fear and, and what about this happening? Get on the offensive Parenting for war. And then we see the last point. We'll we'll wrap up here with this. And he says, I write to you children, in verse 13, because you know the Father. So this last one is to the children. This level is the level of infancy. I love a play on words. That's really good. Intimacy, then infantry, and then finally intimacy. And this is what the final level looks like. It's this base level. And this shouldn't, this shouldn't cause us to be sad or disappointed. I want you to think about this. A believer, someone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, even if they did it yesterday, are at this place. Isn't that amazing? We shouldn't, we shouldn't just be like, well, I, this is kind of a disappointing place to be in. We should all we should stand in awe and wonder that John's assessment of these people who maybe came to know Jesus yesterday, this is what he says. Because you know the Father, that they actually are included in the family of God. That is amazing. That is an amazing reality. So that's for someone that's brand new in the faith. But there's a problem that I've seen happen often in churches, and it's very easy for us to fall into. It's a mindset that says, I'm a baby Christian. And then they stay as baby Christians till they're 50, till they're 60, till they're 70, till they're 80. I met, we did an evangelism training once, and we were talking at it, and I I appreciate the guy who came up and talked to me. And it like, it I, I want to say that he was like, 70 or 80, he was talking about his, his grandchildren and how, how he could connect with them. And he was saying how he'd been in the same church for 50 years. And he said he didn't really understand what this gospel was yet. And I say this only, like he, like he was saying that he was a believer, he was saying that, I, I think he was, I think he was being genuine. But he, he said, I've never shared the gospel with anyone. And I wonder, is that what, is that what John maybe has in mind here? to encourage us to move out of this level of of being children in this way, moving out of the level of infancy. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there ought to be a period of infancy. I should not expect the children in the nursery to be in the same place that, that the children who are older are. So there is a level that we should see and help those who are in this infancy level. But we shouldn't be satisfied with staying there. Hebrews five again says says again another thing that back to the to the children he says for though by this time you ought to be teachers this is a rebuke he's saying to them you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God you need milk not solid food what does a baby eat a baby a baby doesn't eat steak if I laid a steak in front of my son which he would eat it but, 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 but a steak in front of like a baby, baby that's just eating milk. What? Are the, what? Are the, they wouldn't know what to do with it. Why? Because they have to drink milk. They can't. They can't eat. They can't eat solid food. This is what he's saying. He said, "You need milk, not solid food." For everyone who lives on milk, then here it is. Here's the explanation: is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. Now, if if you're in this infancy spot, don't be discouraged. Because you know the Father. This is a good thing. This is, we, should, we ought to see these levels not as, oh, well, this person's over here. <laughs> well, Bill, he's over there in that. He's a child. We all know Bill's a child. No, 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 no. This ought to, as the family of God, urge us, encourage us to want one another to mature into him who's the head. Because like children... We need others to come along us. Like, uh, when someone's in a child position, they need others in the family to come and help them. So no matter where you find yourself on the spectrum today, remember this. You need to know who you are as your identity. You need to also know whose you are. And notice every single one of those people. Notice the fathers. Notice the young men. Notice the children. Here's a beautiful thing. They're all in the family of God, never forget it, because we're going to start seeing some really hard things next next week and the week after. We'll be talking about the Antichrist. We need to know that who we are in our identity, and we also need to know whose we are. Who owns us in this way? So, with that, uh, we're gonna we're gonna close up. Um, I want to give us a, a time of response, though. Uh, and again, I, maybe even. If nothing else, if you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know how else to respond, respond in this way. Respond by asking the question. Maybe set up the the measuring stick and see where you've been. Maybe maybe ask yourself the question last year, where was I at? Two years ago, where was I at? Three years ago, where was I at? And and if you can honestly look back and say, Yeah, you know, I've seen myself grow in this way. Or maybe you're like, you know what? I haven't grown in my love for God's word in five years. Hey, (laughs) start today. Today's the day to respond. So just take a minute and respond. uh, Do so by uh, checking yourself against that. As weak and really challenged people. God, we respond poorly. We know our frailty. We know, God, that you see even far beyond what we see. When we think we're mature, God, we see that you are infinitely more. And God, as we look at, as we examine our, our own maturity level, God, may we not be discouraged, but may we be encouraged. May we be reminded that we are a part of the family. And may that draw us to awe and wonder. God, thank you for your grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Thank you that we see our great example. By your spirit, we pray that you would continue to grow us up into him who's the head. For our joy, God, in you and for your glory. For this is our prayer, we pray in Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, with that, uh, we will break for Sunday school. So we will be back up here at 11:04. So.